So I'm going to briefly announce each of our presenters, and then they will come up one at a time. They'll tell a little more about themselves and hop right into their, their presentation. So we have with us this morning uh, Dr. Lisa Bowens. She is the Associate Professor of New Testament here at Princeton Seminary. Her recent book and topic uh, for her seminar today is African American Readings of Paul, uh, Reception, Resistance, and Transformation. This is the first book to investigate a historical trajectory of how African Americans have understood Paul and utilized his work to resist and protest injustice and racism in their own writings from the 1700s to the mid-20th century. There's a copy of those floating around the room, too. Our next presenter is Dr. Dale Allison. He is Princeton Theological Seminary's Richard J. Dearborn Professor of New Testament. His most recent book and topic for today is Encountering Mystery, Religious Experience in a Secular Age. And then we have Dr. Casey Choi. He is the Kung Chik Han Chair Professor of Asian American Theology. His teaching and research areas encompass Protestant and Catholic ecumenical moral theology, theological aesthetics, peace studies, race and identity, and Asian American theology. Today's seminar will focus on the question, how should the church respond to authoritarianism and political violence? Dr. Kimberly Wagner is assistant professor of preaching. Wagner's most recent book and topic of her seminar is Fractured Ground, which explores preaching and ministry in the midst and wake of trauma, particularly thinking about collective trauma. Dr. J. Paul Hines is assistant professor of pastoral theology at Princeton Seminary. His recent book in today's seminar, A Gift Grows in the Ghetto, explores strategies to encourage black men to embrace a life of faith that is dependent on the God who always sees, nurtures, and is in relationship with us and our gifts in the wilderness and the ghetto. And Dr. Amelia Kennedy is assistant professor of the history of medieval Christianity here at Princeton. Dr. Kennedy is a religious and cultural historian of medieval Europe whose research focuses on histories of health, medicine, aging, and disability, as well as Christian monasticism. Her current book project and seminar surveys European experiences and depictions of old age from about 1,000 to 1,500 with a focus on old age and religion and the ways in which medieval conversations resonate today. So please join me in welcoming our six faculty members this morning. And I'm going to invite up Dr. Bowens. Do you prefer this or the podium? Okay. Thanks. And that's the flicker. Okay. All right. Good morning, everyone. Good to see all of you. It's great to be here. Thank you, Dale, for that wonderful introduction. It's great to be here at Reunion 2023. Um, I want to talk a little bit about what my seminar will entail in the next session. The seminar's title is African American Readings of Paul, Reception, Resistance, and Transformation, and it derives from the title of my monograph. As many of us know, African Americans have a complicated relationship with the Apostle Paul and his letters. This complicated relationship comes out of the use of Paul and his letters to justify black enslavement. For example, we find in Ephesians 6, 5, slaves be obedient to them that are your masters, 
In Colossians 3.22, slaves, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh. These words of Paul and others like them have caused great harm, wreaking havoc upon the bodies and minds of African Americans for centuries. With such a caustic message, how could African Americans possibly utilize the words of the apostle in their struggles for equality and justice? By considering the reception of Paul's letters among African Americans with specific attention to their historical use of Paul in resistance and protest, we will discuss and discover in our seminar the ways in which African Americans have done just that. They have utilized Paul and his letters in their struggle for equality and justice and in their fight against enslavement. As we will see, African-American Pauline hermeneutics, that is the use and interpretation of Pauline scripture, has impacted the lives of many African-Americans in terms of religious thought and experience and has been employed by them to resist oppression and protest dehumanization. We will see that African-Americans have been interpreting Paul for centuries, and we will explore briefly some black exegetes from the 1700s to the mid-20th century. These exegetes gave extensive attention to the Pauline corpus in their autobiographies, in their essays, in their speeches, and in their sermons. And they saw in Paul a figure for liberation as well as a companion in their resistance and protest hermeneutics. African-American Pauline hermeneutics is intricately tied to history, and that's one thing we will also investigate briefly. The two cannot be divorced. How African-Americans read Paul is influenced by how Paul was read and presented to them in the past. Often in their interpretations of the apostle, African-Americans are responding to what is happening to them and what is happening in their communities. For example, blacks have utilized Paul to respond to historical realities such as enslavement and lynching. It is important to note that there is no one way that African-Americans interpret and understand Paul. Hence the pluralization of readings of Paul, hermeneutics, the worldview of African Americans is diverse and multivalent, but Paul plays a significant role in African American reflection in the midst of all of its diversity. This diversity and this historical presence of Paul in African American writings demonstrate that he plays a significant role in the black protest tradition. So these are just some of the interpreters I hope to explore in our seminar. For these interpreters and others, Paul's words were a redemptive force, and so he became a religious resource for them as well as a political resource. For these interpreters, the religious and the political were intricately linked and cannot be separated. Paul's words provided spiritual nourishment and the biblical basis to protest unjust laws and to resist the dehumanization of slavery and segregation. The apostles' words also provided black women preachers like Julia Foote and Ida B. Robinson the scriptural means by which to resist those who would deny them the pulpit because of their race and gender. 
These rich early interpretive trajectories provide an important glimpse into Paul's significance in the black struggle for justice. So we will explore how African-Americans employed Paul to protest and resist white supremacy and injustice, how they used Paul to demonstrate black agency, to raise consciousness against anti-black ideologies, to expose the nation's hypocrisy, to empower black communities, and to advocate for unity. So we're going to cover a lot. <laughs> so I want to end with this quote from C. Michelle Venerable Ridley. She writes, African Americans have struggled for more than two centuries to reinterpret and revise a distorted gospel received from white Christians. Paul becomes part of this reinterpretation and revision process that Venable really speaks of in this quote. Throughout the centuries, African Americans are engaged in rescuing Paul from the hands of slaveholders and reclaiming him in the liberation fight. We will get a glimpse of these authors' um, precarious existences and catch glimpses into how some of them weaved Paul's writings into the fabric of their lives, how they weave him into their own stories, how they weave him into their own context, and at the same time, how they transform Pauline texts and make them their own. Thank you. Good morning, everybody. So I'm a New Testament scholar. This book is not New Testament scholarship, the one I'm talking about. It's actually the book I've wanted to write for several decades and never had the courage to do so. But I can see retirement down the road. And I'm already a full professor. I have no promotion committees in my future, so I can do what I want to these days. So I'm going to begin with two quotations. And these represent the sort of experiences that I talk about in this book. So here's the first. It doesn't matter who these people are. I saw nothing unusual with my outward eye, but I nevertheless knew that there was someone else in the room with me. A few feet in front of me and a little to the left stood a numinous figure, and between us there was an interchange, a flood flowing both ways of love. There were no words, no sound. There was light everywhere. Indoors and out, the world was flooded with light the supernal light that so many of the mystics describe and a few of the poets. The vision lasted five days. Sometime on Saturday afternoon, I had a sense of fatigue and could sustain it no longer, and it faded. There was no one around to whom I could tell it. My husband is embarrassed and alarmed at the mere mention of religious experience. He would have thought me mad as I surely would have thought anyone mad who had told me such a story. Indeed, the part of me that still adhered to my rationalist upbringing fully agreed with that point of view. Yet the experience was so overwhelmingly good that I couldn't mistrust it. None of my various mentors in psychology understood it at all. I wrote at once to Dr. So-and-so, a famous Jungian analyst, though without giving her a full description, she replied immediately, that such an occurrence was almost certainly to be mistrusted. 
For me, it was the most important thing that has ever happened to me. So, another one. I was still in bed Sunday morning when my wife turned on some classical music. Unfortunately, I don't know the piece. It didn't wake me, but rather brought me to that fascinating state between waking and sleeping. I entered some sort of place that was, please recall all the times you have heard mystics say that what they experienced is ineffable, entirely sky blue, composed of softly pulsating diamond crystals with large bird shadows or souls flitting through it. It was like being in the sea. This stuff surrounded me, but I wasn't exactly floating. The place itself was joy unbounded, ecstasy without comparison. The music was part of it, and the bird shapes were overflowing with, singing with happiness, as was the place itself, which I can't think of as either organic or inorganic. Maybe it's like First Peter, living stones. Along with the joy was profound peace. The only thing comparable in my experience being one night in the hospital when I floated around in a morphine stupor. I experienced all this for three, four, or five seconds and then was so overwhelmed that I began to cry. My crying then brought me out of that state. Words cannot begin to describe what it was like. It will stay with me for the rest of my life. It confirms my belief that underneath all this mess is absolute joy. I perked up when the sermon three hours later told me that creation was the overflowing of love from the members of the Trinity. This made perfect sense. Also, as I lay in bed, I thought that if all the world and its miseries were suddenly dumped into that sky blue land, the joy would be so overwhelming and complete that all evils and regret and anger and hatred and revenge would dissipate in a second. It is so immense that it would make everything else matter less than a hill of beans. I think someone in that state would really feel that the sufferings of the present time are not worthy to be compared, etc. What do you do with testimonies like this from Christians and non-Christians? What do you make of them? What do you make of them as pastors? What do you make of them as theologians? What do you make of them as critical thinkers? My book is about mystical experiences. It is about experiences of transcendent love, which are really common, folks. It's about encounters with invisible evil presences. And we now know that this happens at least once in a lifetime to 20% uh, of North Americans. Unbelievable. Visions of angels. A recent poll said 5% of Canadians say they've seen an angel. What the heck is that about? <laughs> Near-death experiences, subjective experiences in prayer. My book, very briefly, has three goals. The first goal is simply to report on what's going on. This is just news of the world. It's just news, and we know a lot more about these experiences than we used to know, a lot more. Psychologists and scientists and others have been studying these experiences. We can make generalizations. We can classify. We can do lots of things now we couldn't do in the past. Secondly, this book argues that we should not pathologize these experiences when they occur in otherwise healthy individuals, which they usually do. I want to depathologize them within the church, within the secular culture, and I want us to be comfortable, more comfortable in talking about them, and I want us to do so in a knowing way without embarrassment. One of the motifs in the literature is, this is the most important thing that's ever happened to me, and I've never told it to anyone but you, again and again and again. 
And then finally, the third point of my book, I suppose, is to push back a little bit, uh, gently. I think some of these experience, experiences suggest that uh, there are defects in modern rationalism and modern materialism, and that there is more to the world than uh, my education taught me there was. So I'll be talking about these things. Thank you. Good morning. Um, welcome. And it's a pleasure to see all of you here and a privilege to um, share some thoughts with you this morning. Um, I've done a lot of work on um, the question of um, racial identity, particularly Asian American um, racial identity and the relationship between um, racial identity and violence. Uh, my next project um, is trying to move into a broader category of political violence. And so um, what I'm about to present here um, as a teaser for what um, I will be um, sharing at our seminar is really just um, one of a number of case studies um, that uh, I have been, um, that I'm working through as a way of thinking about um, this question of political violence. But at any rate, I want to start with um, a passage that I'm sure that all of us are familiar with. It's a passage from uh, Matthew chapter 5, verses 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. I forgot I have slides. Um, now, a number of current events, um, especially the war in Ukraine, um, has made the idea of peacemaking, well, shall we say, a complicated one. What peacemaking is, or what it should mean, has become even more complicated for Christians and the church, especially since so much of the political discourse surrounding Ukraine has been, in effect, we must do whatever we can militarily to support um, Ukraine against Russian authoritarianism or Russian aggression. And so, when there have been instances of Christians raising moral questions about the wisdom of unwavering military support for Ukraine, such as Pope Francis here, and I know I'm just invoking someone in a church that necessarily is not uh, present here, uh, there has been enormous political pushback. Now, uh, just in fairness, uh, Pope Francis has said many different things about Ukraine. Um, at, at one point, he has said that uh, military uh, support for Ukraine um, is morally permissible. Um, um, more, more recently, he seems to have uh, pulled back on that and has called into question the uh, moral wisdom of um, the use of violence uh, for Ukraine's defense. And there's been, um, as I just noted, enormous um, political pushback um, from a number of sectors um, in this regard. So all of this raises a question. What would it mean for the church to preach and embody peacemaking in a world of violence? And we might add, in a world in which imperial domination or aggression is alive and well. This, of course, is not a new debate um, or a new question for the church, but how we might begin to think about this question might be aided by recalling a Christian debate about a similar situation that took place in 1931, the Sino-Japanese 
um, war. It is at this time that Japan, um, or what was then um, Imperial Japan, invaded and annexed northern, uh, northern China, a part of northern China called Manchuria. And when they annexed it, they renamed it Manchukuo. They actually used, by this time, Korea was um, annexed as well by Imperial Japan, and they used Korea as a staging ground for the invasion of northern China. Um, it is at this time that Japan um, annexes Manchuria in northern China, and just like today, with respect to Ukraine and Russia, the church was faced with the question of how to respond to one superpower's aggression against a less powerful and perhaps innocent state. And so it is in that context that the towering theologian Reinhold Niebuhr debated the merits of military intervention with his brother, his brother theologian, H. Richard Niebuhr, in the Christian Century magazine. And so what I want to do is to just um, run through um, a few uh, passages from their debate in the Christian century um, as a way of getting a sense of how the Niebuhr brothers um, tried to negotiate this question of whether or not we should intervene, um, support, um, in this case, China um, against the aggression of Imperial Japan. And for the sake of time, I'm going to run through this um, as quickly as I can. So in an essay titled, In the Christian Century, uh, Must We Do Nothing, um, Reinhold Niebuhr uh, uh, wrote the following, uh, starting at the top. I find it impossible to envisage a society of pure love as long as man remains man, and that is, a self-interested person. He then concludes, or continues, religious perfectionism drives either asceticism or apocalypticism, which he thought was deeply theologically problematic. In practical, specific, and contemporary terms, he continues, this means, this is really where the rubber hits the road for him, this means that we must try to dissuade Japan from her military venture, but we must use coercion to frustrate her designs if necessary. To say all this is really to confess that the history of mankind is a personal tragedy. I think we can hear echoes of these arguments now um, in the present situation. His brother uh, penned a response titled, um, The Grace of Do Nothing, a rather provocative title um, to this essay. And so in response, he starts with um, a passage from Galatians chapter 6, verse 7. Um, as a man soweth, so shall he reap. Um, and based on that passage from Galatians, um, he writes the following. So the American Christian realizes that Japan is following the example of his own country and that it has little real ground for believing America to be a disinterested nation. He may see that his country, for which he bears his own responsibility as a citizen, is really not disinterested and that its righteous indignations is not wholly righteous. An inactivity, doing nothing, in other words, then is demanded which will be profoundly active and rigid self-analysis. Then he continues, this way of doing nothing, the old Christians called repentance. For me, the question is one of either or, either the Christian method of repentance and forgiveness, 
or the method of self-assertion. Either nationalism or Christianity, either capitalism slash communism or Christianity. Man's task, therefore, is not that of building utopias, but that of eliminating weeds and tilling the soil so that the kingdom of God can grow. I've run out of time, so let me just say this real quickly. If we think about this debate between the Niebuhr brothers in our contemporary context, the debate raises the following questions. Is Reinhold Niebuhr's position the obvious one? If it is, then it would seem that the church should actively preach in support of more and continued military support for Ukraine. In other words, we might say, following Niebuhr, Reinhold Niebuhr, that the gospel calls us to be nonviolent peacemakers in principle, but given the messiness of the world, we may have to get our hands dirty. The military defense of Ukraine being a prime case in point. But Niebuhr's, Reinhold Niebuhr's position comes off as the obvious one because H. Richard Niebuhr's call to do nothing sounds rather naive, impractical, and nonsensical. Good old, fashion, uh, good old pacifism, if you will. But is doing nothing as naive, nonsensical, and impractical as it may sound? What if, but what if doing nothing, that is, asking for repentance and forgiveness, rather than supporting the use of military violence, is the most constructive action that the church can do for Ukraine? You'll have to join me later if you want to know more. <laughs> Good, thank you. Got to start my timer, though. <laughs> can you hear me? We good? All right. I'm a wanderer, so I said, do we have a mic where I can wander? Uh, my name is Kim Wagner. I have the joy of serving as assistant professor of preaching here at Princeton Theological Seminary. I've been here since August um, and uh, came from Lutheran School of Theology at Chicago. I have the joy of teaching courses like Intro to Preaching. I just finished a course called Women Preaching, Preaching Women. Um, but the course that is at the heart of my current work is around preaching and trauma. And um, I also just came out with a book on preaching and trauma. It came out in January called Fractured Ground, Preaching in the Wake of Mass Trauma, where I think about what it means to preach to minister, to pastor, to lead communities, to speak into communities after mass traumatic events. Everything from mass shootings, gun violence, uh, to uh, natural disasters, to public health crises, of which we are all all too familiar. So um, today I want to spend just a few minutes kind of introducing you to this work um, with hopes that you'll join me later perhaps, uh, although I may be attending some of these other sessions um, uh, it, it, as we are um, enjoying. So I think in the book and as I teach my preaching and trauma class, particularly about the nature of trauma and particularly the impact of collective trauma on communities, because to me preaching has this really awesome gift of being able to address collective trauma, right? It is one of the few times we get to engage the collective. And so I start by thinking about the nature of trauma. And of course, trauma is often thrown around a lot, right? Um, I ran out of coffee this morning. It was totally traumatic. 
right? I mean, I have said that before, and, and my students know it's my favorite example. Um, but uh, we use it a lot, right? We toss it around. But really, trauma, even when used precisely and well, is used to describe the subjective experience from a whole variety of events, right? Everything from mass violence to natural disasters to individual traumatic illness and loss and abuse, all the way to uh, historical and generational traumas like racism and white supremacy or LGBTQIA discrimination. And so when we think about trauma, I think it's important to remember that trauma foundationally disrupts and disorients. It foundationally disrupts and disorients. And this is what makes trauma different from simply pain, grief, suffering, right? All those things are involved in trauma, but trauma at its foundation disrupts and disorients. So we tell all these stories, right, about our lives and our world and, and who God is and who we are. And when a traumatic experience happens, what happens is that experience can't find a home in those stories that we tell, right? It, it can't find a place that we can't make sense of it. We can't make sense of it mentally. We can't make sense of it spiritually. Even our bodies can't make sense of it, right? And so these experiences live outside our capacity to integrate them into the stories that we tell about our lives. And I say that when that happens, we have kind of a dual crisis that ends up happening. And the first crisis is a crisis of time because these traumatic experiences become a sort of eternal present, right? They can't fit in. We can't put, a, put them in the story. And so they become a sort of eternal present, which means that they keep coming back and they disrupt the connection between past, present, and future. Put another way, the past we lived didn't lead to the present we expected, and therefore it's almost impossible to imagine a future. The second crisis that happens is a crisis of coherence. Things no longer fit together, right? It no longer cognitively makes sense. It no longer makes sense in, in how we process the world. Our stories no longer feel safe or meaningful. And I, I call this combination of a crisis of time and coherence an experience called narrative fracture, which is what gave the name to the book. Narrative fracture, the idea, not narrative decimation, we are resilient humans, but we, our stories start to break apart. They start to fall into pieces. And so I think about what does it mean as preachers for us to pay attention to this happening not only at the individual level, but at the collective level. What happens when whole communities at the same time are dealing with narrative fracture, are having crises of identity and time and coherence? And so I think a lot about how does our preaching respond to this? And I want to make the argument that one of the best things that we can do is offer language and honor narrative fracture in both the content of our sermons, the content of our speaking, the content of our teaching, as well as the form. Because it matters not just what we say, right, but how we say it. And so if we say it's okay to be living in this tension between brokenness and hope, um, and then we end our sermons or end our talks with a happy ever after bow on the end, it's counterproductive to the word we just gave. And so my work uh, often thinks about this, uh, this work of, um, of, of how to acknowledge and even bless brokenness while at the same time 
holding on to that thread of hope and navigating that tension between brokenness and hope. I also think about the role of the preacher. Because if we're going to sit and preach in the tension, if we're going to pastor in the tension, if we're going to lead in the tension, uh, then we cannot be fixers. We cannot be superheroes. And we want to be. All of us, we want to fix it. We want to make the world a better place, right? We want to we make it all better. Well, one of the things about trauma is that it lingers, and we are invited to sit in that tension. And so we have to reimagine our role as preachers and pastors and leaders into what does it mean to preach, to speak, to teach in this tension between brokenness and hope in both what we say and how we say it. So I hope you'll join me for our continued conversation as we engage this topic more. Thank you. Angel, how you doing? Um, what are we going to talk about today? So my book, uh, A Gift Grows in the Ghetto, on the uh, spiritual lives of black men. It's about the struggles that many black men find or have to endure in growing up and developing in a hostile environment. One of the challenges that they have is overcoming brokenness, what Dr. Wagner just spoke of. The inspiration for writing the book came from years of reflection. But if I were to be honest, it probably started with one story, a poem. I started to hear when I was a young child, and I've kind of carried with me through the years. So I'm going to recite it. Maybe you know it, you've heard it. If you do know it, join in with me. Humpty Dumpty <laughs> sat on a wall. Humpty Dumpty had a great ball. All the king's horses and all the king's men cannot put Humpty again. Tragic story, right? Now, in retelling this poem to myself over the years, there's one thing I've never heard anybody talk about. That is, what side of the wall did Humpty fall on? <laughs> and what would have happened for some of us if we fell on the other side? Now, what side am I talking about? I'm talking about the side where the king's men and all the king's helpers come and attempt to put us back together again. But they fail, right? They can't do it. But at least they try. My course is teaching about pastoral, pastoral care and pastoral theology. <clears throat> I think I oftentimes frighten students when I let them know your best efforts to put a congregate back together will fail. Right? We, we don't handle fragmentation well. First of all, we oftentimes have a model in mind of how this person should look, should act. Let me try, based upon my wisdom, to put them back together again. And sometimes in doing that, we do more harm than good. 
But at least somebody tried. Now, in my book, unfortunately, I have to talk about that other side of the wall. Those who are born on the side where there are no king's helpers coming to help you. But you're left to be broken. And the expectation is that you should be broken. What do you do then? Now, there's a record of this telling this story over and over again in African-American literature. Richard Wright, for instance, his book Native Son talks about Bigger Thomas living for decades broken. And the expectation that somehow he's supposed to put himself back together again without any assistance. James Baldwin, in his work, talks about the same situation. No king's helpers put yourself back together. But there's a story of a similar situation in the Bible. Sort of Ishmael, cast into the wilderness. One of the things I'm working on in the book is that I think there is a correlation between the ghetto, the brokenness that is found there, and the biblical wilderness. Because the biblical scholars let you know that the wilderness was a place where nothing was expected to grow called godless land, cursed land, the same way we think of some inner city communities. Now, Ishmael was cast out with his mother, broken, left to die. And only God could put him back together again. Because only God sometimes has only the courage, the wisdom, and the time for us to become whole again. So that's my message, and I hope you join me in my seminar later. Thank you. All right. Well, thank you so much for the invite. Um, I'm so glad to be here, and I am so excited to sneak out of my seminar, like uh, Kim, to visit everyone else's. So. I'll begin with an intrusive question. How old are you? Most of us. <laughs> no one has to answer. But most of us have some sort of straightforward numerical answer to this question and a rather impressive collection of paperwork uh, to prove it when the government demands it. So birth certificates, driver's licenses, passports, not to mention all the less formal raft of documentation, photo albums, social media, embarrassing yearbooks. Right? Age seems to be a simple matter of objective fact, indicating the time that has passed since one was born. And we gotten increasingly precise over time, especially since the Middle Ages, my period in counting that time. But most of us have at least some sense of age that is not just a flat number, right? We might feel old or feel young in different contexts, uh, or we might identify strongly with a particular generation, for example. Uh, when the great bard of our time, Taylor Swift, sings, I don't know about you, but I'm feeling 22, you don't have to be 22 to feel that way. So my current research is about aging and old age in medieval Europe, uh, focusing on the years between around 950 and 1350, quite a long time ago. And I'm really interested in looking at how people understood the aging process, so theoretically, spiritually, theologically, um, and also the place of old age within the life course, as well as in just more practical, logistical realities, like did people retire? And if so, what did that look like? Um, 
Before the modern ascendancy of chronological age, medieval people used countless criteria for determining how old one was. Uh, when most people don't know their exact birthday, right, you have to be a little bit flexible. So they look at factors like physical cognitive function, relational status, are you senior or are you junior, uh, and symbolic significance alongside chronology. Uh, so for example, there's one 12th century magistra of Admont in Austria, so a mother superior, who said she was 120 years old because that's how old Moses got to live. How does she know this? It came to her in a dream. So that's how old she is. So age is clearly far more than just a number. It's also a constructed identity, an experience, a set of expectations uh, that we might have or that others might have for us, and an act of representation. Now that said, most medieval people who lived long enough eventually earned the, able of old, the label of old, so there's some chronological component. Um, and flexible medieval definitions notwithstanding, historians have, of course, tried to pin down just how many people were sort of in their 60s or above during the Middle Ages. They estimate about 8%. Um, and so older people are a sort of small but significant minority, uh, and people from a range of backgrounds and professions reached an advanced age. Now, in my book in progress, I, and also some of the sources I'll be working with, maybe some of you today, I look especially at monastic sources to ask what old age was like uh, in the Middle Ages. Monasteries provide a very distinctive environment uh, to examine what aging is like. Uh, one might expect this from the practice of aristocrats taking monastic vows in old age or joining monastic communities in pensioners. I think I've even seen a few retirement communities called the monastery. Um, so it's pretty clear that monasteries had considerable advantages for their older residents. They permitted concessions and accommodations, things like extra food for older residents. They had dedicated infirmaries, so healthcare for people living within them. Uh, they upheld a structured daily routine that would have provided uh, opportunities even for nuns and monks with cognitive decline to continue participating. And they provided a stable social community. Despite these generally favorable conditions, uh, as we'll see, conflicts of course still arose. One common source of conflict is the infirmary, the dedicated space for treating and housing sick nuns or monks, uh, including many older ones. So on the one hand, we read these medieval sources and they tell us that devout se senior monks want to avoid the infirmary at all costs. They do not want to go in because the infirmary is for babies, and they're not interested. On the other hand, we read in the sources about these malingering senior nuns and monks who just want the extra food and the more comfortable beds and the more relaxed schedule. I'm definitely in the second camp. So one of the main questions I'm interested in in my book uh, and in a lot of my teaching is how monastic writers determine age-appropriate behavior when it comes to this space, the infirmary, and how they sought to regulate its boundaries. A second source of conflict centers on retirement. Many people, especially in the 12th century and before, felt that abbots should remain in office until death. Jesus did not retire, although he did ascend, which is kind of like retirement. But anyway, he didn't retire, and so you shouldn't retire either. And stepping down is seen as a betrayal of the community and a waste of the hard-won wisdom that can only be accrued over decades. But the abbots themselves at this point often wanted a break, so you get some arguments. As monastic bureaucracies grew during the 13th century, we see ideas about retirement really doing a 180. Uh, increasingly, abbots were in fact pressured to retire for the good of their communities if they were considered too old to do the job well. So as you can probably tell from this brief discussion of some of the sort of issues and, and concepts and ideas that come up around medieval aging, the available primary sources written by medieval nuns and monks themselves are really abundant and varied. This is part of why I focus on monastic sources, because it's an area where we get more than just these little snippets that we have to patch together, um, but rather we're able to ask more detailed questions and 
really get a sense of the humans who came a thousand years before us. In some cases, we might see the foundations laid for institutions and ideas that we still hold today, which is always a little alarming, especially when we think they're bad <laughs> ideas or institutions. Uh, but other times we see a thousand years ago a world that's very strange, that's very different, and that's full of creative possibility. And in either case, we're coming closer to understanding people who lived and aged in the past, as well as how we got to where we are today. So I have one minute, which means I am early for once, and uh, yeah. <laughs>